Skin conditions can be notoriously challenging to treat and can cause considerable distress and discomfort to those affected. I'm Amy Skilton, and I believe that clear, healthy skin should be available to everyone. I'm a naturopath, herbalist, nutritionist, and qualified esthetician with 15 years of experience. And one of my areas of specialty is chronic skin disorders. Given the fundamental differences in presentation, etiology and treatments, you'd be forgiven for thinking common conditions such as eczema, psoriasis and acne are completely unique. However, there are some key underlying characteristics that unite chronic skin dysfunction. In August, I will be presenting a half-day seminar where you will learn practical guidelines to optimise skin health and I will be covering ingestible therapies, topical applications, dietary interventions, and how to reprogram the gastrointestinal system to address the underlying issues. Seats are selling quickly, so be sure to book early to avoid disappointment. You can reserve your seat at bioceuticals.com.au slash education slash events. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me on the line today, all the way from sunny Melbourne, not, is Beth Bundy, who's a qualified naturopath of over 17 years, specialising in integrative and functional medicine. Beth has previously worked as technical consultant with PathLab, one of Australia's original functional pathology companies, and she's currently training health practitioners nationally as clinical consultant at NutriPath, integrative pathology service where she's in higher demand as an engaging informative speaker and she is that I'll tell you and she also works as a functional medicine practitioner in a busy and highly successful integrative medical practice welcome back to FX medicine Beth how are you I'm quite well in, in considering that there is I'm just looking out my window now and it is abysmal in Melbourne today <laughs> so um, I've heard Oh, I'm not good. So I've got my raincoat on and my galoshes and I'm ready to go. <laughs> galoshes. <laughs> Today we're going to be talking about intestinal permeability and how we, how we assess intestinal permeability and what it means indeed. Because I always find this quite confounding when you're looking at a test that's internally what you look for in a patient. But I think there's a lot that we need to go through really before we actually mm. get to that symptom picture, if you like. So I, I think first what we need to start off with is what actually is the IP test or intestinal permeability test? All right. Well, what we have to look at is <clears throat> that the intestine has to successfully balance two seemingly opposing jobs you know, it's got to facilitate digestion and absorption of nutrients, while at the same time, it's got to prevent the absorption of microorganisms, um, bacterial antigens, large molecules and antigenic food components. And the absorption of water-soluble molecules through the intestinal mucosa can occur either through the cells, or what we call transcellular uptake, mm -hmm. or between the cells, which is paracellular uptake. And the intestinal permeability test which is a urine test, directly measures the ability of two sugar molecules, which is lactulose and mannitol, to be absorbed or permeate the gastrointestinal mucosa. So the test works on the principle that the little mini mannitol molecules are readily absorbed by the intestinal villi, whilst the larger lactulose molecules are not and therefore serve as a marker for the integrity of the mucosa. Because under normal circumstances, the ratio of the lactulose and mannitol in the urine should be low because the lactulose is not absorbed and the mannitol is. However, when the intestinal epithelium is compromised or what we may know as leaky gut is present, um, the large sugar molecules can permeate through the tight junction to the mucosa and is then found in the urine. So in this situation, the level of the lactulose is increased in the urine and therefore the ratio of the larger lactulose and the mini mannitol is high and this 
can be indicative of general increased permeability and leaky gut. Okay. Now, also, this test can help diagnose malabsorption. So in this case, the low level of mannitol that may come out, which normally penetrates the intestinal epithelium, then it may indicate that there's malabsorption of small molecules. So really, the degree of the intestinal permeability or malabsorption is can be reflected in the levels of the two sugars, the lactulose and the mannitol, that is measured in the urine, urine sample, collected over usually a six-hour period. Ah, okay. And is there any any particular six-hour period that's you know better or worse? Like for instance, for instance, and I'd love to say a six-hour overnight one, but like a morning versus afternoon void. Uh, not necessarily. They have to actually take the the sugars. Yeah, they have to um, swallow the lactulose and the mannitol. Yep. Uh, so something that probably be got to remember is lactulose is also used as a laxative. Mm. So oh, perhaps yeah. overnight might not be a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> a particular joke comes to mind there, but anyway. <laughs> so, so what's the utility of the intestinal permeability test? Like what symptoms do you consider to say, uh, you know, I, I really need to look into this further? Well, you've got to remember that the gut is often subjected to a wide variety of insults from things such as alcohol, um, caffeine, heavy metals, uh, environmental chemicals, and the impact of chronic stress can also affect the permeability of the gut wall. Uh, and so correcting this altered permeability can have an immediate effect on relief of symptoms um, of patients and facilitate improvement. So generally... The sort of symptoms you can look at in your patients or they might present to you with could be food sensitivities, uh, eczema and other chronic skin conditions, psoriasis, etc. Uh, irritable bowel, they have, you know, generalised stomach pains, bloating, heartburn, uh, good old brain fog, unexplained fatigue, autoimmune uh, conditions such as celiac or inflammatory bowel diseases with Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus. Uh, other things you can consider is non-steroidal anti-inflammatory use, if they're using a lot of those, chemotherapy, um, intestinal infections, parasites, bacteria, alcoholism, also included, and that would be non-alcoholic uh, fatty liver disease, um, and even those on the autism spectrum. So usually with these sort of presentations, you can often suspect more probably than not that they may have a leaky gut. Mm. So um, I'd probably say practitioners could consider the test for assessment of um, the permeability or malabsorption in these conditions, which may help um, monitor the effectiveness of their treatment therapies on that. Then. You know, there's so many different conditions where intestinal mm. permeability is a factor that it almost seems like it's it's not so much a quote unquote diagnostic type of test, but more of a test for uh, measuring treatment success. Um, because you know we're often treating the gut in such a plethora of of disease. The naturopathic idiom stands true, but. It seems to me that what, like we should be doing a baseline uh, when we begin treatment and, and then give uh, some objective measure three, six months later of how that treatment has progressed. Would you agree with that or is there a oh, facility? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because as, as we do think that many of our clients have some form of leaky gut, and, and I agree with you, is we don't do this to prove that they have leaky gut. I much prefer to use it as a how they're progressing with treatment because, um, you know, so many of our patients present with the skin conditions and the upset guts and what have you. And you could just treat, absolutely. But what are you treating? Yeah, that's Because if you thing. go in just with gut healing, you could be missing that they have a really obvious food intolerance, like an IgG reaction. Huh. Or they could have a gut infection. Down here in Melbourne, we, we find a lot of people with blastocystis Hominus and diantamoeba, and that is affecting their permeability. They're rather um, controversial just in themselves. I think. I, well, I think they're they're labelled as a um, an obligate 
pathogen, as in they're just and simply and only a pathogen. Well, I don't think that's mm. the case. I think they're a facultative pathogen. You have the wrong landscape, they'll take effect, just like candida. Absolutely. Um, but Absolutely. I just don't I see agree. that. Yeah. And, and the other thing is, how do you, if you're just treating, how, do you, how will you know if the patient is truly improving? Yeah, that's Because that's... I don't believe patient symptoms are always reflective of what's going on inside. Mm. Shall we mention vitamin D deficiency? Mm. Uh, you know, I've never had a patient tell me that, um, you know, ever since I've given them vitamin D, all their symptoms have gone away. <laughs> that's right. And they didn't know about it. Um, and also, <clears throat> the other thing is people, you know, patients do like to see themselves in colour on paper as I have said before, yeah. and I think it also helps us as practitioners if we have some sort of proof um, of the patient's leaky gut, uh, it's easier for us to explain the, the necessities for, uh, you know, a treatment plan, especially if they're going to be subjected to a detox or a gut protocol. Yeah. Some of those are pretty scary. I mean, you can hear them crying out there now, you know, what do you mean I have to give up coffee, cheese and chocolate for a few weeks? You know? why, why would you um, give up coffee? Why would you give up coffee? Why would you give up chocolate? <laughs> I, I think what's interesting is, you know, like coffee has had this such a, a bad rap for decades and now the evidence is changing. I mean, I, I spoke to a gastroenterologist who was talking about the utility of using coffee to actually treat non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. We'll get into NAFLD a little bit later, but I think it's really interesting that, you know, like chocolate has these polyphenols as long as it's the right chocolate. And as long as you have good coffee, can actually be good for you and not too much, maybe. Oh, well, that's very exciting. You've made many patients and myself <laughs> very happy. And if you can just make a good story for alcohol, yeah. it'd be great. <laughs> no, I can't. I, I can make a good story, but it is a story. <laughs> and, and for our listeners, I'll, I'll put the, um, the reference up on our website, but it's Coffee and Non-Alcoholic Fatty Liver Disease, Brewing Evidence for Hepatoprotection by Chen and et al. And that is in Gastroenterology and Hepatology 2013, I think it is. So I'll put that reference up on fxmedicine.com.au. So here's a question for you, though. What about reproducibility? Because isn't everybody's intestinal permeability, their natural sampling, if you like, by dendritic cells, um, isn't that a, a, a personal thing? Is there a, such thing as a normal range? Well, well, there is to a degree. And generally, labs will follow the same testing protocols and methods. Measurements and reference ranges may differ. But yes, there is a, a somewhat a normal uh, level or what we would expect to see, hence reference ranges. Yeah. Though we do need to remember that the sugars do have different absorption methods. Um, and, and if the gut is performing its job fabulously well, we should expect to see X amount uh, excreted. Yeah. There are some interpretive problems in that um, a study actually showed that um, depending on where you lived, so geographical variations is mm. what they called it, mm -hmm. can affect um, permeability. So you can have increased permeability in more tropical areas um, as well as um, the patient's hydration status is also going to affect, obviously, then what they excrete yeah. too. Um, so generally, we we do expect um, a level, um, you know, within a range. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also what the patient's been eating prior to the test. I mean, look, pe people have to perform the test correctly. Yeah. This is the other thing we need to be conscious of too is that patients are very gung-ho about uh, doing the test and sometimes they neglect to read instructions mm -hmm. prior. So they may have – there's various foods and, and drinks that you need to stay away from as well, so to minimise the variability of the test. And um, <clears throat> another study showed that the best indication for small and um, large intestine permeability was performing a test within a two-hour window uh, and up to six hours for the colonic permeability. So you want – that's why the test goes, you know, up to six hours mm -hmm. only, not yep. more than that. And if you're going to retest to 
see how your treatment's going, you would need to ensure that the patient was taking their sample for roughly the same amount of time each time they did the test, again, to reduce the variability of results. Mm. You know, there was a lot of um, hubbub some years ago about, you know, are these tests just a load of hogwash and things like that? And I think the the interesting thing is that they're coming into their own. Um, I remember reading a, uh, just a, an evaluation, looking at something totally different. It was evaluation of intestinal function in children with autism and gastrointestinal symptoms. Now, this is by authors from Harvard Medical School. Um, you know, we're not talking about a backwater sort of place here. Um, and um, so this was published in Journal of Pediatric Gastroenterological Nutrition 2016, so quite recent. And they're talking about intestinal permeability and this term that was thrown out by the medical fraternity called leaky gut. And they said, that doesn't exist. It's the same stuff, guys. <laughs> it's just a nice <laughs> it's just a nice way of saying it. It's kind of like, say, instead of a gastroenterologist talking about abdomen, you say tummy to your patients. It's the same exactly. thing. Yeah. Exactly. It's speaking the patient's language instead of the, the specialist's language. Yeah, but I think, you know, I think the medical fraternity, if you like, has really got to get up with this and just say, look, we're talking about something that naturally happens, but there's vast variation and there, and there can certainly be aberrations in many conditions. Um, you know, we're not talking a diagnostic test, though. No, no, not, not at all. Not at all. There's, you know, it's, it's really, I just say, it's indicative of where your therapy is. May go. I think that's its great utility, tracking trends. Yes. Mm. So yes. what you mentioned something that interested me there. You said that um, intestinal permeability was higher in in tropical regions. That's it. That speaks volumes to me about, you know, the ingestion of, um, you know, more uh, a variety of bugs, for instance, or even parasites if you're looking at the tropics. Um, and that may indeed be our body just sampling, ha- having to sample the outside world more. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 didn't, um, I didn't get the lowdown on why particularly, but it was just something that they found. Mm. So, um, I, again, I can um, share the, the link to the study. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to, love to put so that on. I'd love, everybody. To, love to look at it. So most yeah. naturopaths are familiar with that, this concept of intestinal permeability, but why is it such an issue in our society? Well, the Western diet is definitely not helping. It's full of sugars, it's high fat, they've got trans fats, we've got pesticides, we've got heavy metals, we've got lack of nutrients from farming methods, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and then, of course, there's the fact that we eat so quickly, not allowing proper digestion to occur. Uh, we've spoken about in earlier podcasts where people are eating on the run, they don't eat at all, they're eating at their desk. You know, we don't have that nice, quite sedate um, eating time like the olden style we used to do it. Like we should be doing it, yeah. Like we should be doing it, like the the Mediterraneans we've been doing for ages, you know, they have a six-hour lunch. Fantastic. And, um, do, do you know what uh, I heard? Yeah, the, do, you want to, do you know what I heard on a, a program last night um, yeah. on, the, on ABC TV? That's Australian ABC TV. Um, was, it was talking about diet and how to stay young, I think the, the, the program's name was. And it stated that... of meals consumed in the United States are consumed in a car. (laughs) 20. 20%. Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine an Italian doing that? But we're not allowed to use Well, how could he? Because his hands would be waving, he'd be trying to eat. It'd be very difficult. I can't do it. Yeah, there'd be 10 people in the car, this social interaction. (laughs) Exactly. And they tell us we can't use the phone, but we can eat with both hands. Just absolute crazy, crazy stuff. Yeah, Yeah, it's disturbing. Well, I hear some more crazy for you. that a huge amount of Australians are on proton pump inhibitors yes. or PPI. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Now, here's a fact for you. Since their introduction only 20 years ago, the PPI use has increased by more than 1,000% oh, in yeah. Australia. Oh, yeah. 1,000. Oh, yeah. This is a blockbuster uh, drug. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. And it's uh, over the last decade, at least two PPIs have featured in the top 10 most prescribed medicines every year. Mm. And what we have to remember is they were designed for short-term yeah, relief. Absolutely. Like, you know, <laughs> short-term, um, and that they can reduce um, 
nutrients such as B12, iron, calcium, magnesium. And data has also shown that the majority of the PPI users do not actually have a clear indication for therapy. Mm. You know, they're just popped on it. I think it's Um, really interesting that, like, I can still remember reading the MIMS back in 1989 and Zantac. Oh, glory days. Yeah, Zantac and Tagamet Mm. were... Zantac particularly is the one I remember, was only prescribed for, I think it was either six or eight weeks therapy. End of Mm -hmm. story. Now there's people living on it for years, decades. Years. And we wonder why we're seeing this issue um, with potential magnesium deficiency and bugs and... Bugs. Well, the other thing we've got to remember is that these things, there's evidence that these PPIs alter the composition of the bowel flora. Absolutely. They lower the diversity of the flora and can increase things like streptococcus. Mm-hmm. Um, and and with our bugs, we also need to remember that gram-negative bacteria, things like your E. coli, Campylobacter, Salmonella, Helicobacter, produce lipopolysaccharides um, or LPS. And these are known as endotoxins because Absolutely. of their ability to affect the immune cells. And because our gut is the first line of defence against these lipopolysaccharides, if our gut is compromised with nutrition, stress, metabolic state, then the permeability of these lipopolysaccharides can increase, which increases intestinal permeability and inflammation, and so the cycle goes. Um, And these LPSs or lipopolysaccharides have been shown to contribute to the development of chronic inflammatory processes which can result in metabolic diseases such as type 2 diabetes and um, fatty liver disease. Uh, And interestingly, the permeability of the lipopolysaccharides has been shown to be modulated by dietary factors, and the major dietary factor that appears to modulate this is dietary fat. So as the dietary fat increases, so does the concentration of the lipopolysaccharides which is very interesting when you're talking about Americans eating in their car. Absolutely. I'm thinking that they're eating a lot of dietary fat, things that they've probably just driven through and picked up. And I think probably there'd be a very close correlation with Australia and America in that instance. Well, we always follow probably. them. Yeah. We do. Um, so uh, decreasing dietary fat um, and ensuring your patient doesn't have an overgrowth of these gram-negative bacteria, uh, bacteria sorry, would be a part of, you know, your leaky gut therapy. Uh, and also knowing that um, it increases the permeability by a mechanism mediated by oxidative stress. If we block this with antioxidants, our N-acetylcysteines, along with things like omega-3 fatty acids, the EPA and DHA, uh, again, this is effectively being shown to prevent inflammation and reduce permeability. And something that's other- way underutilised fish oils. Absolutely. For, for things and, like NAFL, yeah. Yeah. And um, and again, NAC, N-acetylcysteine, mm-hmm. is, is good for the fatty liver as well. Um, also, the other thing that is a major cause of intestinal permeability is the overuse of antibiotics. Oh, again, yes. Australia stands on the uh, near the top of the podium of one of the top prescribers of antibiotics in the world, which is frightful. Uh, they're prescribed very often for viral conditions. They're prescribed to kids, very young children whose bowel flora is then changed, possibly forever, uh, depending on how young they're given. Again, there was a recent study in Absolutely. Finland. Yeah. Um, Finland, Finland, mm. uh, that uh, showed that uh, it can absolutely change the uh, kids' microbiome forever. And indeed, um, and and indeed all- even if the pregnant mother is treated, mm. um, then that can change the landscape of the child, Absolutely, the microbial landscape that, of the child. Yeah, and we know that antibiotics uh, increase the risk of asthma and obesity in children. Mm. Uh, this is obviously no doubt because disturbing the microbiome uh, in the first place. And I've got an interesting um, snippet from an Australian government press release from last year. Where You ready for this? Mm-hmm. Survey showed 65% of Australians believe antibiotics would help them recover from a cold or flu more quickly. One in five people expect antibiotics for colds and flu from their doctor and nearly 60% of GPs, general practitioners, 
surveyed would prescribe antibiotics to meet patient demand. Now, this this is something that really irks me. It really gets my goat. <laughs> and I actually saw this on on the same web page in a um, a medical. So forgive me if I get this wrong. I think it was something like Medical Observer. Um, but on the same page, there was two one main story and one uh, you know side story. You know, click on this and you'll go to that story. And they were juxtaposed in their 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 way, if you like, of presenting it. So on one page they were saying, doctors, uh, look, you know, it's really hard for us to not prescribe antibiotics because our patients demand them. The other story was talking about vaccination and they were steadfast in saying, if my patient was refusing vaccination, I would stand firm and, and I would make sure. Now, hang on, guys, you can't have it both ways. <laughs> You either believe in it and it's got utility or you restrict it where it doesn't have utility. That's medicine. <laughs> you know, you, know. you, you oh. can't cry a poor story on this one. And, you know, this yeah, is becoming such an mind. issue. I've been banging on about this for years. And, you know, it was making waves around about 10 years ago, you know, MRSA and that sort of thing. Now we've got VRE. Now we've got all of these other bugs. You've got untreatable tuberculosis now. Um, and now it's really crisis point. It is truly crisis point. It's here. It's now. It's not going to be. It's not climate change. It's right now. We, we're becoming, we're coming to the end of the function of antibiotics because we've been overusing them. We need to be looking at other methods. And, you know, this is where I think natural medicine needs to be really seriously looked at in hospitals, like mm. things like lactoferrin, probiotics. This is the utility. This is where it's going to come from. Yeah, your, your saccharomyces. And oh, absolutely. And indeed, when yeah, you talk yeah. about NAC, absolutely. Yeah, I know. It's, uh, when I read that press release, I was just blind, mind blown um, because it was like, are you kidding me? Yeah. Like... And, and it all comes down to education too of the of the of the public, because if they believe this and believe that, and uh, you know, I guess we're seeing the first yeah. rumblings of the 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 government yeah. sort of attempts, if you like, at, at, at trying to educate the public, and and you know, it's a paucity, it's a it's a it's a poor effort so far. Um, you know, they've been looking. Yeah, at, it's um, a bit kind of late in the piece too, isn't it? It's like oh, the horse has bolted. Abso absolutely, but certainly yeah. it needs to happen. But we need a better you know, more prolonged, more thorough um, educational sort of uh, attempt by the government, I think. Yeah. Now, you, you, can I just ask you, though, what about the the meaningfulness of what happens with secretory IgA? If, if that lessens, do you get an increase in intestinal permeability? And I'm thinking here with regards to things like chronic or indeed acute stress, where I'm going here is because I've seen um, elite sports clubs using the intestinal permeability test to track the health, the gut health of their players. And we know that this has an effect with, say, probiotics because um, Bioceuticals did a research trial with um, um, Cecilia Shing looking at decreasing heat stress and in um, intestinal permeability factors, if you like, um, in elite athletes and service personnel. And this was from gut stress. So Ooh. what do you think the utility here is with chronic stress, maybe? I th you know, you mentioned chemotherapy, um, but I'm wondering about what about sports? Well, I mean, sports or any high, you know, stress. Like, mm. you know, sport is a stress, but so is, you know, people are living in daily stress with illness or, you know, a chronic illness that's not, um, you know, if they're con constantly suboptimal. That's, that's a chronicity in that, um, and so that could be affected. And, and certainly I think the secretory IgA, which you can measure yeah. as well, yeah. um, because it reduces gut permeability and is essential for your mucosal immunity and protection against pathogenic invasions or you know, infections, uh, combining perhaps the secretory IgA test and um, an intestinal permeability test can again help you monitor more um, specifically the patient and certainly anything where um, they're constantly under stress. So like your sports, you know, elite sports people, mm. people with your diabetes, um, uh, you know, chronic bowel diseases, yeah. um, immune diseases, 
because that is a constant stress. You know, I actually wonder if intestinal permeability might find a place in things like um, ICU units tracking the risk of, say, sepsis in burns victims because it's something that can be measured even if they're unconscious. So even if you've got an unconscious patient, this can be measured and perhaps it might be it might find its place as a uh, potential tracking of of risk in say burns or um, um, crush injury victims um, where they've got chronic issues with gut stress. Uh, well, yeah, and another test just when you're talking about unconscious people and people in ICUs, they're taking blood off people constantly. Yeah. So another test that can look at intestinal permeability is zonulin. Right. Uh, the zonulin test, which yeah. is a blood test. Yeah. Um, and zonulin is responsible for the regulation of not just intestinal permeability, but also the permeability of blood-brain barrier yeah. and other mucosal membranes. Um, it, it's like the gatekeeper of the tight junctions, yeah? Okay. So, so when would you consider these various tests? When you know, when would you consider using an IP test versus secretory IgA versus zonulin versus... Even these newer tests, like um, you've got a SIBO test or um, even like a complete digestive stool analysis. Yeah. How yep. do you so then wend your way here? Some of them are kind of interchangeable. Mm. There's not Sometimes one's not better than the other. Um, so just with, with zonulin, elevated uh, zonulin levels have also been associated with type 1 diabetes, multiple sclerosis, asthma, Crohn's and other inflammatory bowel diseases, mm-hmm. including celiac. Um, because we know that two powerful inducers of zonulin are gluten and, and intestinal bacteria Absolutely. or dysbiosis. Um, so the benefit of zonulin, which, which I have, is that it is a blood test. It is simple in that it is a blood test and you have a range and that you're either high or you're not. But it's invasive. It is invasive. So, But if you're doing blood tests, Anyway, yeah. we were talking about ICU. Yeah. People are in there. You're taking blood. You can. That would be an easier thing, perhaps, than getting them to take the lactulose and mannitol and getting them to wee it out. And that's relevant to people that are in ICU mm. and maybe unconscious. Yeah. But if we look at our general patients that our practitioners are dealing with that are still conscious <laughs> and walking about, there's various tests, like you've mentioned. So. If we look at the intestinal permeability as a, you know, they've got to ingest it, the lactulose and the mannitol, that's kind of easy because they can do it at home. Right. So, you know, that can be easy for children can do that, um, uh, you know, and, and people can do it at home very happily. Um, as they can do secretory IgA tests, secretory IgA tests are either a saliva or a stool test. So, again, that's easy, can be done at home. Mm -hmm. Um, And you may do, say, instead of a secretory IgA test on its own, you may do it with relation to other um, saliva tests you may be doing, such as adrenal, you know, cortisol measurements, which, of course, we were talking about stress. Cortisol is going to be related with the stress, which can aggravate the uh, secretory IgA. So you probably add that in there if you were... Um, worried about someone's gut, which is how I would usually use the secretory IgA. Um, CDSAs or com- uh, digestive stool analysis can provide information on other causes of altered gut function, such as you know metabolic and absorption markers, such yep. as short chain fatty acids, beta glucuronidase, calprotectin, and they can also give us some information on bowel flora, liver detoxification, and inflammation markers. So if um, a patient perhaps came with more gut um, symptoms, you would possibly look more towards the gut uh, uh, CDSA along with perhaps an intestinal permeability. Uh, Liver detoxification profile, where we look at the phase one, phase two um, activity, Mm -hmm. uh, can also be useful to look at potential implications of your intestinal permeability. Uh, because this can increase phase one activity in the li- or increased uh, phase one activity, I should say, increases permeability because 
as we know, that's when the products are made more toxic, in quote marks, to our body. Um, so you could consider a liver detox profile with an, a permeability test to provide a more comprehensive overview of the liver in terms of the um, efficiency of detoxification, which may be helpful in things such as your uh, fatty liver disease. Yep. Give us an idea of um, how that's going how it's, or how the permeability is affecting the liver. Um, and I mentioned the zonulin, which is the blood. So that's probably not as easy as doing a poo test, a wee test and a saliva test. SIBO test. Uh, or small intestinal bowel overgrowth tests um, can be considered to determine a causative factor regarding the intestinal permeability perhaps after you've looked at the lactulose mannitol or zonulin test. Um, and, and with all of these tests, though, we must consider um, the cost to the patient, mm. um, especially if you then intend to further investigate so often you might in, uh, know that there's impermeability or some liver issues or some gut issues, and then we also want to check in food sensitivities, and we, then we also want to check on other bits and pieces. You know, all these things add up. Um, the um, stool analysis can range from $100 to $750, depending on how comprehensive you want to test everything that can be tested. SIBO tests range from 250 to 300, um, again, depending on how many sugars, because they measure sugars, mm -hmm. uh, you want to measure. Uh, you know, perhaps the practitioners who are not sure where to start with what test, when you say, which one do you use when, it's a bit hard to go, this equals that, and you use this test for that. Mm. I, I, I've still it's got a some. Bit more ambiguous. Yeah, I've still got some questions. You know, I'm just at the beginning phase of my my learning with um, the SIBO test, the small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and I've mm. still got some questions there. You know, like for instance, sugars aren't the only substrate for bacteria. What about proteins? What about amino acids? You know, proteobacteria, for instance. Um, I just, I don't know. I'm, I'm not there yet. And I've just, perhaps if some people have some answers out there, they can let us know on fxmedicine.com.au uh, or let us know by Twitter or Facebook. Uh, you know, we'd really like to hear your opinions on this and, and help us to help other practitioners to increase their, their competency in this area. So it's an area that really needs looking into. It seems to be coming up though um, a lot. The yeah, and that, that's why I like to look at the, the gut first. As in, when I say the gut, I'm talking about the large intestine. Yeah. Um, you know, so we look at what's going on there with bugs and the metabolic markers, you know, your butyrate, your acetate, your short-chain fatty acids, what have you. So you do a digestive stool analysis early on? Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. More likely to, to check out for parasites and bacteria. Uh -huh. Make sure, you know, as I said, we found, we found, I found uh, Giardia in quite a few people that not, not necessarily symptomatic. Mm -hmm. uh, we found Salmonella in people that aren't necessarily symptomatic. But, of course, this is affecting, uh, they might have other symptoms that they're not relating to their gut um, that we need to, you know, ensure that we're helping them through that infection. Yeah. You know, um, you know something that comes to mind is, and I don't know about this. I'm, I guess, I'm posing a question: is in the facility of using the intestinal permeability test, or indeed, the digestive stool analysis, with diets such as um, Victus Health, um, which yeah. I mean, the ladies there have just done such an awesome job of creating diet plans, visual recipes, like a cooking book for those people that are on certain, dare I say the word, restrictive diets. Um, and, you know, like you mentioned that you're picking up, um, you know, streptococcus or, or some parasite or something like that in the digestive stool analysis. And this might mm. team so well with a diet to treat that. Indeed, that's how Victor's Health came to be was, you know, one of the lady's daughters had a, a real um, problem with chronic acne. So, yes, uh, it's streptococcal. Yeah, and I wonder mm -hmm. if that might be have a good facility there for measuring treatment effect with a diet. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's that's one of the ways we do deal mm. with things like streptococcus is, you know, you've got to get people off the sugars that feed the bugs. Yeah. Uh, same as with candida or some of the other yeast infections. 
that we find is we have to look at people's diets. As we mentioned before about the dietary fat um, increasing lipopolysaccharides. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it, it is always about, I mean, because ultimately, apart from what we're picking up in the environment, it is about what we put in our mouths. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I definitely think that the, the diet has, um, you know, something to be said there. Um, so given that treatment would encompass all things gut related, including, you know, diet, nutrients, herbs, our important herbs, do you treat intestinal permeability at the small gut level first? Sure. You could start with your gorgeous gut healing protocols with your glutamines and your zinc and your licorice and your slippery elm and your aloe, all the fame. Um, but you must look at the diet, uh, the diet, the patient's diet and lifestyle. As I said earlier, you know, we're eating on the run, eating at the desk, eating in the car, mm. uh, not stopping to chew, like you said, and enjoy their food or not eating at all. But digestion starts in the mouth. Well, well, actually, it really does start in the head. In the head, yes. Um, in the head. So when we anticipate that yummy lemon cheesecake we're about to eat, um, oh, sorry, um, I should really say gluten-free, uh, <laughs> casein-free, fructose-free. Paleo cheesecake. <laughs> organic, vegan, broccolini salad. <laughs> You leave my broccolini alone. <laughs> but, I'm sticking with my lemon cheesecake. But, but I get you about um, getting starting. Digestion starts in the head. Mike Ash calls this the cephalic phase of digestion. But it, it's so true, isn't it? Like I, I'm not. Oh my god! Yeah, I'm not religious, I'm, but like I like to look at <laughs> I, I like to look at the function of religion, like where it what its function was, um, social adhesion, that sort of thing. And I just look at the 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 practice of saying grace. You know, and like, as I said, I'm not religious, but the practice of just pushing away the daily stresses. And if you like, if you wanted to be esoteric, putting a silver light around you and saying, get out the stress, I'm enjoying my food and just concentrate on the food and the social interaction that you're having. And that sort of real relaxed sort of, ah, you know, right now I'm going to eat Absolutely. sort of thing. It's so I mean, important. When I'm yeah, well, when I'm anticipating my yummy lemon cheesecake, I'm already in this, you know, I'm already salivating. Yeah. And it's a little bit early for lemon cheesecake, but I'm <laughs> salivating just thinking about it, yeah. which is my digestive juices have begun. Yeah, that's right. And that is what we want. And this is also, I think, why um, much of the reason that a Mediterranean diet is such a hit is because traditionally... They would sit around for hours talking and laughing and eating and drinking, you yes. know, wine or water, not diet cola and sugary vitamin water and shoving mm. in food in a 15-minute lunch break. You and know, eating should be an enjoyable event. We've yeah. got to get those juices flowing. That's right. That's um, exactly right. And and the other thing I'm thinking about, you know, we mentioned diets before, um, as in with the Victor's Health girls, mm. is I'm not – I personally am not into really strict diet eliminations until you have some idea about what, if any, food intolerance um, or bowel infection that don't feed mm -hmm. a patient might have because some of the restrictive diets are just that. They're too restrictive, which adds stress to the patient. Oh, absolutely. You know, that's the stress of eating and they're freaking out like, oh, what can, so many patients say to me, oh, I've been put on this thing and I don't know what to eat. Mm. I've got nothing left except lettuce and a potato. Mm. Which is um, the wrong thing to do anyway. Absolutely. <laughs> unless so, unless um, there's real need to rest the bowel. Yeah, uh, mm. and we're, which we're back to the ICU again. Yeah, that's so, right. That's exactly um, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I I really believe starts with their head and people enjoying their food. Yeah, you know um, the social aspect, absolutely. And this is where we're always on the run in the car, yada yada, is is part of the problem. Absolutely. So, what about caveats? What about you know when should you do it? When should you go meh or what happens if you actually worsen intestinal permeability? Well, I, I don't think you should just give your patients more healing. Um, you know, just giving them more glutamine, more glutamine, more glutamine is not necessarily the, the thing we need to look at. We should consider other triggers. So 
This might be environmental toxins, including heavy metals. We know that things like mercury um, can greatly um, upset the gut. Um, other foods, um, genetic predispositions, infections such uh-huh. as parasites. As I mentioned, we see a lot of um, bugs and giardias and salmonellas. Um, an example of, I just want to mention um, a patient I had who, he came in very distressed because he was his life was really not so crash hot because he was having to use his bowels up to 14 times a day. Um, and he just said, you know, it's very hard. He can't drive long distances. He has to know where all the public toilets are because of his bowels. And um, he had done quite a bit of research on this and was suspicious about um, mercury because his mouth was full of fillings. And uh, so rather than just giving him, you know, gut healing, we actually did some testing, found that he was indeed um, had some mercury uh, toxicity. He was, we removed uh, the, well, we didn't. He had his fillings removed. We did chelation. Then we also did gut healing in that process. And I saw him about four months later and he, he came in and I said, how are you going? And he said, great, I'm only pooing twice a day. Wow. So, yeah, so that was quite extreme. Um, but again, it could have been his um, genetic predisposition and various other things that added to why the mercury in him was such a obvious um you know, reaction to it in his bowels. But this is why we have to look at other reasons. We just can't say, oh, you have an impermeable intestine and this is what we're going to do. We're going to have to say, why? Why do you have it? Yeah. Um, you know, another example of a patient I had was she was very unwell, losing a lot of weight. Uh, we did a, uh, apart from many other tests, we did um, food sensitivity and she came up almost sensitive to everything measured. Yeah. Yeah. And then we also found out that she had some gut bugs. And when we treated the gut bugs and then redid her food sensitivities, they had greatly reduced. Yeah. Like she she had most of the foods she could eat again. And um, her husband was like, oh, this test must be rubbish because how could she go from this to this? And it's like, because we did a lot of work on her gut, removed the parasites did the gut healing, you know, removed those foods that were aggravating, not necessarily causing, but aggravating the situation. And, you know, she was greatly improved. So we do have to look at, um, you know, we've got really kind of comfortable with this leaky gut business and there's leaky gut protocols, but we have to look at the why this patient has the leaky gut yeah, rather than just treating the condition. Yeah, absolutely right. I think all of the tests, you know, are only there to add to the practice of a competent practitioner in, Mm -hmm. you know, either solidifying their suspicions, which they can't otherwise reach a conclusion, but also to track the treatment um, effects that you're giving. And and I think that to me is the utility of intestinal permeability testing. I think that's the, the real thing is like to look at potential risk. I think it's an interesting thing to maybe look at, you know, it might find its place in potential risk. Um, but I think the thing is to track a trend. Well, that's really what we're, do, you know, with, with a lot of these functional pathology tests are uh, to give us an indication of where the patient is to begin with mm. and then on our journey with them is how they're um, Tracking, because the functional pathology tests are not about you. Yes, you have diabetes, or no, you don't. They're, it's not black. They're not black or white tests. Mm. They're that whole lot of grey in between from um, non-disease to disease. Mm. And I think this is the issue that medic that medicine has with functional pathology tests. But you know, they 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 still have really good utility. What I think is interesting. I know we're getting off the track, but. Um, Entelopeptides, you know, it was laughed at a decade ago, and now it's looking at. Um, it has now got um, facility in uh, testing with osteoporosis, a- and it's now accepted. Oh, absolutely! And there's many, there's many um, conversations I've had with, um, you know, um, speci- 
standard specialists and, and um, doctors who have said, no, 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 and then they've had to come in to be a patient themselves. Yeah. Um, and we've used some of these tests and they've gone, oh, my goodness, mm. I did not know that, well, you know, because we've actually found things in them. Indeed, there's a, a recent... Um case, if you like, of a, uh, a certain, let's be generic and call them a dietary type health professional, uh, taking a, indeed charging a, um, a pharmacist um, with malpractice for suggesting the term leaky gut. And when it came for review, um, the evidence was there that leaky gut equals intestinal permeability equals a, a medically accepted term. And so it's kind of like it, it was. A, it, it turned out basically to be a real learning deficit in this other health professional who made the charge against the pharmacist, yeah. <laughs> which is really interesting. Exactly, and mm. I mean honestly, I, I, we see it quite a bit in, in practice. Mm. I must say, so the um, pharmacist was just using lay language. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and I mean this is always our issue. Is we try and we have to kind of speak. Well, I like to speak to my patient in patient language Mm. and, you know, not use big words and sound terribly officious. Uh, It's more about, well, I want the patient to understand, A, what I think is going on, why I want to test, what I think that test will, information will get me and how that will benefit them. Mm. And ultimately, the patient has buy-in if they can see the benefit and that, you've actually got a plan rather than, well, let's just chuck this Band-Aid on. It's like, no, we're going to get down and dig deep and see why and how and what. Absolutely. Beth, I love the way that you you bring all of these tests back, which can be you know ra- a rather cold sort of utensil, if you like, but you bring it back to always looking at the patient's presenting in front of you and looking at their, not just their, um, you know, symptomatology that's presenting you, but their psychology and, you know, how they're feeling and what's happening in their lives. And I think it's, it's that crucial aspect of the holistic treatment, using these tests to merely either back up your suspicions or indeed guide treatment plans. I, I think that is, you, you paint this picture so clearly. So thank you so much for taking us through intestinal permeability today. I really appreciate it. My absolute pleasure, as always, speaking with you, Andrew. (laughs) Thanks, Beth. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This podcast was proudly brought to you by the Bioceutical Seminar Series, The Gut Skin Axis. 